Well, good morning. Oh, come on now. Good morning. Thank you, Sarah. I got you. Hey, Heather. I just heard Heather's voice. Where's Heather? Wave at me, Heather. Hi, Heather. Good to be with you, church. My name is Corey. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my great delight to be able to continue on in our series on the Gospel of Mark today. I hope you've been paying attention through the course of this series because the Gospel of Mark being probably the first gospel written for the church, uh, particularly at Rome, through the lens of the experience of the Apostle Peter, has given us this question as we have gone through the book and will continue to prompt this question up until we get to the very centerpiece of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 8, where Jesus prompts the question, who do you say that I am really? And that's the whole thread of the first half of Mark's gospel. Jesus doing things that makes people question, who is this guy actually saying that he is? The stuff that he's doing, what does it actually mean for him to say and to do the things that he's actually doing? And so last week, Pastor Charles walked us through uh, the silence and solitude thing. A couple weeks ago, we saw the healing of the leper, and, and there was the experience that you guys had of coming forward and being prayed for. And, and I do trust that God has alleviated whatever those things are in your heart and in your soul and in your physical space, that he has brought healing to those areas. So we're going to be looking at this passage, and we're still early on in the Gospel of Mark. We're still early on in this whole journey of asking the question, who does Jesus say that he actually is by the things that he does and the things that he teaches? But this passage is pretty familiar. If you've been around the church world for a little while, you've, you've probably been exposed to this story. Or if you're, if you're a VeggieTales watcher as, as, a, as a younger millennial, you've probably seen this story. Uh, or if anybody remember the Donut Man? Anybody? Donut Man? Anybody? Like two of us, three of us, four of us. How did I know the Larmers were going to know the Donut Man? The, the Donut Man was, was basically like the, the Today's Special, if you remember that show on TV. It was like the, the Christian version where Jesus is the donut hole and he fits inside the donut of your heart and all the rest of it. But if you've seen any of those, those shows, you've, you've listened to this story, you've heard this story before. So what I shared with you today probably isn't necessarily going to be new learning. But I hope that it does prompt the question, who is Jesus really? So we're going to be looking at Mark's gospel in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And the title of today's message is The True Mission of Jesus' Kingdom. Because so far what we've seen is that Jesus does things that nobody else can do. He heals lepers. He goes and says things about himself that people are kind of off-put by. He goes away by himself when his popularity is growing. He just kind of does things that seem like they're the opposite of what any of the typical religious leaders would have been doing, right? And so with this, Jesus is going to start prompting the question, not what can I do for you, but what is it that I've actually come to do for you? And so the big idea today is that Mark, 12, one, uh, Mark 2, 1 through 12 shows us three responses to Jesus' kingdom authority. All right, so kind of get that lens in front of your eyes as we start. And as we, as we begin this, I also want you to remember one thing as we get into this thing. There's, there's also three times where Jesus is going to claim authority that no human person should be able to claim. All right, so there's three responses to these claims, but there's also these three claims that Jesus is going to make. And it's important that we understand that and go through it. So, are we ready? We kind of got a sense of where we're going, how we're, how we're going in this trajectory. Three responses. Jesus is going to make three claims about his, his identity, about his authority, that should be questionable. 
And that's the whole point. So here we go. It says Mark chapter 2, verse 1, 2. I'm using the ESV. It's just the translation that I prefer. Uh, whatever, if, if you're using a, a Bible in the chair ahead of you, it's, it's probably an NIV. Um, but anyways, as we continue. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was the area that Jesus had launched his public ministry. It's where he chose most of the beginning disciples from Peter and Andrew and James and John. And Capernaum was kind of his base of operations, as it were. So after Jesus had done some of the things that he was doing in the previous chapters, in chapter one, and healed the guy, healed the leper, and he had had this conversation and gone away and been by himself, and the disciples were looking for him. After some time, Jesus goes back to Capernaum, and it was reported to all the peoples that he was at home. Now, we already know that Jesus didn't actually have a home. He was a traveling rabbi, a traveling teacher. So home really likely means that this is... Peter's house. Remember that Mark's gospel is through the lens of Peter's lived experience through his time with Jesus. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even, oh, blue's not going to work. No more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching to them. Now this word preaching is significant. When I'm doing this, or when Pastor Charles or Kevin or Neil is is doing what we do on a Sunday morning, we would call that preaching. But in this context, preaching, this word can be used in three different ways. There's the idea of preaching in terms of the proclamation of truth, which is my particular gift set. This is, this is kind of how the Lord has wired me. I've got like a, a little like sense in the back of my head when things are taught. I'm like, I'm not sure that that's quite true. It's just, it's, it's how God has wired me and, I've, and, I, and I have to lean into that. But it's, it's the kind of proclamation, telling forth, letting, letting truth be truth and setting it out in front of people. That's the proclaiming thing. So it could be used as proclaim. It could be used as teach, where Jesus does things like when he teaches stories by example, things like the parables or uh, uh, an object lesson or something like that to try and grab people's attention and make them think about the thing that he's actually trying to communicate. A lot of times Jesus isn't super clear about the things that he's saying on purpose to try and teach people how to listen correctly how to listen for the true meaning, not just that the kingdom of God is a mustard seed. Well, that doesn't make any sense. How can a whole kingdom be a mustard seed? Well, that's, that's kind of the way that people think. So that's another way that we could use the word preaching. But this use that Mark uses is a word for dialogue. So get this picture in your mind. Jesus is now back at home after he's been gone for some time in Peter's house, likely maybe James and John's house or the house of their parents. So many people are gathered around him that he's having a, he's, he's having a dialogue, a discussion with people. So instead of him standing up in front of a pulpit like this and kind of doing the church thing and telling people what's what, he's engaging with them. As they're asking questions, he's relating truth to them. He's saying, they're probably asking some of the questions of the the stuff that Jesus would have taught regularly. What's the kingdom of God about? Jesus, can you explain this a little bit more? And he's, he's having a dialogue. He's walking with them through these understandings. And so if that's the lens that that makes sense, so many people would gather around because they have an opportunity to interact with Jesus. They've got an opportunity to hear from this guy that they've heard so much about. They've heard the miracles. They've heard the stories. And they're trying to get a better sense of what it is that he is doing in the world. And so they, well, who is they? That's a question. We're going to answer that in a second. Came bringing to him a paralytic, so somebody who has no use of their legs, carried by four men. So here's the they, these four men. And when they could not get, here, not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof 
above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. So you kind of get this sense, right? Jesus is in this house. He's talking to people. There's so many people like crowding around in the house and around the house. The windows have people kind of sitting on windowsills like this, listening to him. People are standing in the doorways and trying to get access to Jesus. But these people have a specific purpose, right? They've got a friend who has a physical infirmity. They've got a problem that they have now heard that this Jesus guy can solve. And so they came bringing their friend, this paralytic, on a mat to Jesus because they were hoping that Jesus would do something for them. Now, what's really interesting about this is paralytics or people with significant physical infirmities in this day were generally seen as outcasts in society. They weren't able to go to the temple and, and offer the proper sacrifices. They were likely beggars in a lot of senses, living outside of the temple courts, hoping that someone would give them spare change as they entered in and did their regular temple worship. For this person to have friends at all, somebody who is willing to come alongside and take that person in to see Jesus was a significant blessing already. And so they, knowing that this man had no other hope, there was no other possibility, this Jesus was different than all the other religious leaders. He was different than the temple priests. They needed to get their friend to him. And so when Jesus saw their faith, and this is an interesting part, he said to the paralytic, son, really interesting use of word here, your sins are forgiven. Now, from the whole of Mark's gospel in the first chapter already, this is a strange response, right? They go to Jesus because Jesus heals lepers. Jesus heals physical infirmities. They're bringing him because, Jesus, we need you to do this thing for us. But when Jesus sees their faith, and now there could be the four men who brought the paralytic on the mat. I think, uh, like a couple scholars suggest, it's all five of the men, the, the, the paralytic and these four guys. When he saw their unwillingness to, and unwavering faith to get to Jesus regardless of what they had to do to do so. Jesus saw that and he responded, but not with the response that they were expecting, right? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now in Matthew's gospel, which records the same account, Jesus says, my son. In Luke's account, he just says, man. What's unique, uh, unique about Mark's gospel is that he uses the term technon. It's a Greek word that means somebody who is under the need of authority. So Jesus is using this almost like a term of endearment. Uh, so it's actually crazy that this happened today. Uh, one, of my, one of my mentors when I was in Bible college, he's here today, I saw him as a spiritual dad. And we would have conversations. He kind of led me through some of my upbringing and faith. And, and, and it was kind of like a father-son relationship. But in, in, in terms of endearment, like we had such a close-knit relationship. I needed him. I needed his insight. I needed his wisdom. And he freely offered it to me. And so Jesus, in the same sense, he's saying, son, my son, almost like he's speaking to a child. You have need. And I'm going to respond to it. And he says... Your sins are forgiven. This is the indication that this, this probably young man has now been pardoned of his sin. His, he's now legally acquitted of any guilt or wrongdoing. Forgiven. He's, he's now been, uh, the, the, the payment has been given. It's going to be given in the future by Jesus on the cross. But when Jesus makes this statement, 
it seems weird to our ears if you're reading, if you're just reading Mark 1 all the way through Mark 2, it's like, well, this shouldn't be what Jesus does. The next thing that he should do is he should heal the guy. But he says, your sins are forgiven. And in this moment, this interaction, this is the first time that Jesus makes a claim about authority that nobody should be able to make. That nobody should be able to make. Son, someone in need of my authority who's under my care, I'm going to do something for you like nobody can do for you. He says, I'm going to forgive your sin. Now think about what this would mean. For a paralytic who is outside of society, who is seen as somebody who couldn't possibly give their best to God, couldn't worship God because they were somehow under God's curse. Because a physical affirmity was generally linked to some sort of curse that God had put on a person, whether it was the sin of the parents or the sin of the individual, that God had somehow, uh, he'd done something to them, against them because of their sin. So for Jesus to make this claim, what a sigh of relief that would have come across this paralytic man. You, you mean that I don't have to be ostracized anymore? I don't have to be outside of temple worship. I don't have to be removed from what it means to be part of life and faith in my culture. What a gift. But to make a claim like this is pretty bold, right? And so Mark 2, 6 and 7 says, now some of the scribes, and we're going to talk about these guys, were sitting there and they were questioning. Now listen to this. They weren't questioning out of their mouths. They were questioning in their hearts why does this man speak like this? Now, there's a couple different possible uh, interpretations that scholars have gone through. I, I'm going to share mine last, uh, what I think it is. It says, it, it's, it's kind of, one of them is kind of like, they're just, does he not know? Does this guy not know that you're not supposed to talk like this? Like, he's, is, he, is he so deluded and unaware that what he's actually claiming to be able to do, nobody can do? Does he not realize that by saying that his sins are forgiven, he's doing what's called blasphemy? He's blaspheming. He's equating himself to have God's own authority. He can't do that. He's, he's a man. Because who can forgive sins except God alone? So that's one possibility. Or the second and more likely is, who does this guy think he is? You can't do that. This isn't what it means to be a Jewish teacher. You can't make claims that only God can claim. He is blaspheming. And if you read the Old Testament, the penalty for blasphemy was stoning and death. Jesus is making a big claim here. He's actually putting a target on his back. And he knows that he's doing it. Why does this man think that he can talk like this? He's blaspheming. There needs to be recompense. There needs to be payment. Who can forgive sin except God alone? Now, I said that we're going to talk about these scribes. How is it that they know this? The scribes were what we would call as like the scrutineers of the law. It was their job full time to go around and listen to teachers, whether Pharisees or, or rabbinical teachers or things, and kind of check what they said against the very letter of the law. So the scribes were the people who knew it in and out. They knew what it said. They might not know all the theological implications for say, but they know exactly what the word says. And so if they're doing this, they're sitting there. This is, this is routine for them. They're sitting listening to Jesus teach. Oh, that's an interesting thought. Yeah, as he's dialoguing, asking questions about God's kingdom, there's nothing really offensive about that. But this claim? No, 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 you can't, you can't make that claim. 
Now, something else that's interesting is that when he says this word, why does this man, Mark specifically chooses this particular word. And transliterated from Hebrew into Greek, it's the word Adam or Adam, like, you know, the first guy that was made. So he's saying, there's nothing unique about this guy. He was made by God. So if he's made by God, then he's not allowed to claim God's own authority. This was a a deeply held belief in the Jewish history that only God could forgive sin. Isaiah, their greatest prophet, says this. I, this is the Lord speaking, I am he who blots out your transgressions, which is the, the legal term for things done against a legal party, for your own sake, and I will not remember your sins. This is God speaking. So like it's, it's, it's like kind of fundamental to what it is to be Jewish that only God can forgive the Jewish people's sins. So of, of course the religious leaders are offended. The only thing that they could possibly be thinking is that nobody can forgive sins except God alone. So this guy is a liar. He can't be trusted. He's blaspheming. Part of the issue with this claim is that if they actually believe that Jesus could forgive sins, it's not just that they were believing a false doctrine, it's that they were following a false teacher. They were listening to a false prophet. So it's not just an issue of Jesus making a claim for the scribes, it's the fact that Jesus was saying, I'm different than your other leaders. If they were to follow Jesus, the Jews would be committing spiritual apostasy into leading themselves into idol worship, thinking and believing things that God had commanded them not to do, not to have a God before Yahweh. So for Jesus to make the claim, I have the same authority as God is is a pretty significant issue. Now in verse eight, it says, and immediately, which if any of our young adults know, uh, this is Mark's favorite word to use in the course of his gospel. He uses it to signify a, either Jesus' action or some like the very next thing that took place. Immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, which is just to say they were questioning these things in their own hearts. Jesus said to them, this is the scribes, why do you question these things in your heart? Remember, I made a point in the last verse that they didn't say anything out loud. They were just thinking these things in their heart, questioning, pondering, how can this guy possibly do this? Kind of like this rising indignation. It's not that Jesus just sees on their face that they're having a problem. He's making a claim for the second time. I'm making a claim that I know what's in you. I know what's in your heart. Now, how off-putting would that be? Like you're, put yourself in a situation. What if, what if I knew, I'll use Chris as an example, my friend Chris. What if Chris is like, okay, yeah, whatever, Pastor Corey, I don't care. And I knew that. Like, I could, I could sense that. No, better than that. I knew it. I could read his mind. And I said, Chris, you really shouldn't, you shouldn't question me. It's kind of rude. I'm trying to teach here. That would put him off, right? That make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. So how off-putting would it be for them, to, for these guys to be so critical of who he was and what he was saying, what he was claiming, and for him to go, guys, why are you thinking that? Why are you questioning in your heart? Which gets us to the whole of the issue. This is now the second time that Jesus has claimed to have authority that is beyond any human authority because what human can read the heart of a man? Nobody can. Only God does that. And so Jesus says, which is easier? 
Is it easier to say to this paralytic who has been ostracized, who's been outcasted from society, your sins are forgiven, or to say this, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, Jesus kind of proposes a little bit of a strange question, right? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Well, think about it this way. What kind of testing could they do to find out if this man's sins were actually forgiven or not? Because if he's still a beggar, if he's still ostracized, if he's still outside of the community, he can't go into the temple and offer proper sacrificial worship. He can't do that. So for Jesus to make a claim, there's, there's no test of it. There's no, well, where's the validation check? Where do we actually get that from? Who can verify this? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or to actually do it? Like, it's very easy for me to tell you that I can flap my wings or my arms really hard like wings and I can somehow rise off the ground and start to fly, right? I can say that. It'd be pretty awesome if it was true. But just because I say it, there's, unless I do it, there's no way to verify it, right? There's no way to verify that claim. Or is it easier to say to a paralytic who's not been able to walk, who the community knows, and now it's in full view of this crowd of people who are watching Jesus as he's teaching and dialoguing with them, rise, which is a really significant word, take up your bed and walk. Jesus is basically prompting this question. Which of these responses turns me out to be a liar? He's putting the heat on himself. He's not putting anything back on them. They're questioning in their hearts. Jesus is saying, why are you questioning that? What's easier to say, guys? For me to tell this guy that his sins are forgiven, what does it matter to you if I say it or not? Well, it matters a great deal, and he knows it. Or to rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, that's actually quite strange because Jesus has already healed a leper and so many people are crowded around the house because they know that Jesus heals things. So with this claim, what Jesus is doing is he's claiming to be from God twice now and he claims to do two things that only God can do. Forgive sin and heal the impossible. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues, and this is the crux of the entire passage. But that you may know. Now, this is such a significant phrase, and it's actually from the Old Testament. Mark borrows it from there. It's not just a statement that Jesus makes. Jesus, of course, made the statement. They're writing these things down. But that you may know is a statement all the way back in Exodus, where when God would do the signs and wonders of the miraculous things that he was capable of in in the face of the Egyptians for them to suffer against God's hand of wrath and righteousness and for the Israelites to see his power at work, God would do signs. And the statement he would make to Moses and Aaron would be this. I'm going to do this sign so that Egypt will know that there is a God in Israel. So that they will know that I am the Lord. Jesus is borrowing this phrase, but he takes it even further. Then he says that you may know that the Son of Man. Now, this is Jesus' favorite title for himself. It's used 80-ish times in the New Testament. 78 times it's used by Jesus to identify himself. So pretty common. Like, this is the thing that he views himself as. But this is what he says, that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins. There's the third time. 
he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, and I circled that word in the last verse as well, pick up your bed and go home. All right, let's deal with these things a little bit. The son of man, where does that come from? Well, while it's mostly unique to Mark's gospel, especially at the time that it was written, it does show up one other time in the scriptures. And it's, it's in the, the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, where God has, where Daniel has this vision of all the things that are going to come against God's people, and the, these kingdoms are going to rise, and these kingdoms are going to fall, and how God is orchestrating all these things to bring forth redemption and reconciliation for his people. And he's, he's, it's this magnanimous, wonderful, incredibly difficult to explain vision that Daniel's seeing. And then there's this moment. There's this moment in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. This is what Daniel writes. I saw in the visions of night, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is a reference in the Old Testament to God himself when he's seated on his throne, the everlasting. And this Son of Man was presented before the Ancient of Days. And to him, this Ancient of Days, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting rulership and it shall never pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So what did Jesus just claim when he said that I'm the son of man who has authority to forgive sins? I'm the one who stands before God in perfect righteousness. I'm the one who God looks at and I stand in front of God and God says, I'm gonna give you the kingdom. You're worthy of it. He's saying, I'm from heaven. I'm not some man that you think that I am who's, who's contained inside of these things. I'm not making statements out of my own authority. I'm making statements out of God's own authority. That me, who stands in front of God, am the one who can forgive sin. And so Jesus turns to the paralytic and proves it. Looks at the paralytic after he's had this kind of side conversation with the religious leaders. And he says, rise. Now this word rise can actually be the same, it's, it's most likely the same root word for the word resurrect, which is kind of an amazing play on words, right? Like the guy's not dead, but socially he's dead. He's got no opportunity to be invested in the life of the Jewish faith. He's a beggar. He's got no way to care for himself and no opportunity to make money or to live. So when Jesus says this, he says, rise or Come to life, pick up your bed, and go home. It's a new start. And Jesus is the one who has the authority to give it. And he rose. And immediately, while Jesus is speaking the word, the guy gets up. He picks up his bed, and he went before them all. Why does Mark put this in here? Verify it. Go and ask the witnesses. We, you saw him do it, right? You, you can just kind of think about the people in Capernaum. Now that Jesus has healed the leper, he's gone away. He's come back to his home base. They're having a conversation. Jesus is dialoguing with the people. Jesus does this amazing miracle, but he also says that he's the one that forgives sins. This is going to spread like wildfire. Mark puts this in there saying, go check. Go ask them. There's people that know. And they were all amazed and they glorified God saying that we have never seen anything like this before. The word is better translated, they were bewildered, they were beside themselves, they couldn't believe what they had seen and heard. They were astonished. 
that Jesus, the Son of Man, can forgive sins as proved by his ability to heal the impossible. See, Jesus' kingdom mission is not primarily about healing the sick or casting out demons. His primary mission and purpose in the world is to redeem it to God through the payment of sin, through his blood on our behalf. Jesus heals people to prove the fact that he has the right to pay for sin. That's the point. Jesus does this most, most centrally in his death, resurrection, but he also does it by inaugurating this new kingdom that he has established on the earth. Because if you remember, right, through the course of Mark chapter one, it begins with the phrase, this is the beginning of the gospel of the kingdom of God. That Jesus is about preaching the kingdom. That he's about telling people that there's a different way, there's a different pattern, there's a different, uh, different system to live. It's a pretty amazing story, right? Jesus does what nobody can do. It's one thing to hear it and one thing for me to teach it, but why don't we watch it? Can we do that? This is a clip from uh, the TV series, The Chosen. And uh, if you've seen it, you know it and you love it. And if you haven't seen it, you're gonna see it now and you're gonna love it. And you're gonna go home and you're gonna binge it. And it's okay to binge the Jesus thing, all right? Sorry. <laughs> so let's watch this now. A few things gives me chills every time. When the Ethiopian girl, she says, he has no hope but you. If you are willing, Rabbi, you know you can do it. That's faith. Trusting that God is capable of keeping his promises. So what about this? Showed us the three times that Jesus makes a claim that he has authority that he shouldn't be able to claim. But what about those responses? Here's the first one. There are those when they get confronted with the person of Jesus, they're going to be angry at his claim like the scribes, the Pharisees. They're frustrated, they're angry. How can he possibly do this? He's gonna, he's gonna upset things as they're supposed to be. But we do this, <laughs> we do it all the time. Anytime that we believe that we can be a better God to ourselves than Jesus, we look at him and go, you, we, I don't need you to claim lordship over this area. I'm not gonna give this to you. We do it all the time. We question whether or not he's got what our best good and intention is. When there's some area of our life, some sin struggle that we've got in our own hearts and spirits that we're trying to hide from everybody else, we're also trying to hide it from Jesus and making him think that he can't touch it. That it's not to him, it's not for him to deal with. And so we do that, we get angry, we get frustrated, we get callous against his claim. So we can be one of those types of people. Second, we can put our faith in Jesus as Messiah. That's what the paralytic and his friends did, right? You know that you can. You know Jesus. I'm trusting you. He's got no other hope except for you. Religious leaders, they can't do anything. He's, he sat outside the temple walls for all this time. And so we, <laughs> is that what our faith looks like? Jesus, you know you can and then we trust it to him. We trust it to him. Here's a third response. This is probably the most likely. Astonished at Jesus' ability to heal, to, to preach, to do amazing things, to cause miracles to happen, but we're not actually changed by it. That's really easy too, isn't it? Jesus, I want the stuff that you give me, but I don't actually wanna give you the stuff you require. 
I don't want to have to give you my whole life. I don't want you to have to be king. I still want to be king. It's amazing. It's unbelievable. I can't believe you're capable of doing it. But we walk away thinking, that's it. He's just a great moral teacher. He's just, he's just a good prophet. He's just a, he's just a fantastic rabbi. No, 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 no. He's the son of man. God's representative of kingdom authority to the world who's come to inaugurate a kingdom for God, a kingdom that, as Daniel 7 says, of every language and nation, that his dominion, his rule will be over everything and it will never end. Church, that is your kingdom. Jesus graciously, lovingly, freely shares it with you. But this has to be the response. Not just amazed at him, but trusting him alone. He is the only hope. He has no hope but you. So where do you land today? Or in which of these areas do you find yourself in different situations? Because it's probably a mixture of the three. But what spot is it that you need to really do that heart, soul, work, trusting Jesus for what he says he's capable of doing and believing him to do it. Let me pray for you. So Father, we would ask because of the blood of Jesus being poured out for the sin of the world that we know we can come to you, come to your throne of mercy to find grace in our time of need. There are people here today who have need primarily they need you as Lord and Savior, as King, as Master, as the Son of Man who inaugurates, sets up, and sustains your own kingdom. That's what we need. So thank you, Jesus, that what you have done, you do. And so we entrust, I entrust these people to your care. Father, would you prompt the hearts of the men and women, students in this room now to do the deep heart work of figuring out how do we actually respond to you, Jesus? Is it always faith that you're Messiah? Probably not, but your blood covers that. And so we ask you to make us more like people who trust you in each and every moment of the day. Be with us. Thank you that your presence is here because you indwell the praises of your people. Change us, Lord Jesus, for your glory and for our good. Amen.